Good morning. Today we'll be reading from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half of a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the turn. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman who went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who kept God's commands and held fast to their testimonies about Jesus. Our second reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 18. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Thank you. Thank you, Noel. Uh, it is Advent season in the Christian calendar, which uh, means it's the time we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. And as we said last week, uh, the theme of our Advent series this year is the Prince of Peace, which is the title uh, uh, given, one of the names given to uh, the promised child of Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, this child... Um, who we know is uh, the promise that is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, we come to discuss this morning peace in heaven. I know we don't often think about heaven maybe not being a place of peace, but this text clearly pictures for us a great conflict, a great war, a great strife between God and Satan. Now, we need not imagine this conflict as a yin and a yang, as 
uh, as we said last week, sort of two forces, the light and the dark, uh, kind of vying for, against one another. Uh, but this is really um, a power that is meant to be in submission that is authoring a rebellion. Uh, God is going to deal with the enemy. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, if you're not familiar with it, it's the last book in the Bible. I invite you to turn there if you have your Bibles. Uh, if, you, if you need a Bible, there's one at the back. Uh, we'll be in Revelation chapter 12. And the book of Revelation, uh, it's, it's about a vision that God gave to the Apostle John. And uh, in this vision, John sees a vision of the future, right? The way things are and the way things will be. As we come to this point in the book of Revelation, it's kind of, um, it's sort of a, a three-part picture in chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. And as some persons have described it, it's really the center, kind of the theological center of the whole book. Some of you have your favorite favorites chocolate, right? This is the gooey part. This is the center. This is the part that sort of gives the whole meaning and flavor to the whole book. And so it makes it a great text for us to consider the implications of the birth of Jesus Christ as we come to Christmas time. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, as you're turning to Revelation chapter 12, um, the big question we're looking at this morning is, what is Christmas from God's perspective? What is Christmas from God's perspective? Now, as we said when we were trying to put this in a nutshell, if you think and talk to people about Christmas time, they usually will give you some sort of sentimental package about family time and restored relationships or charity or generosity and, or, or having a break, having a rest, having a holiday. For a lot of people, that's what, that's what Christmas is. It's family and it's friends. And this was sort of reinforced to us. We, we got to take uh, a few days away, about three days away this week, and um, four days away this week. And we made it a, a habit every night at the end of the day to watch a Christmas movie as a family. And let me tell you, the bar is low, right? <laughs> The bar is low for what constitutes good filmmaking. And, and if you put Christmas into it and there's some nice looking people on the screen and you just get a little bit of human tension, then hey, someone will pay you to make the movie. <laughs> some of you may want to change careers. Um, and you watch this and, and you're like, there's got to be more to it than this. And, and I think Revelation 12 is a text that really gives us a great picture of what Christmas means from God's perspective. And we're going to see that uh, in order for us to really celebrate Christmas rightly, we need to know what it is that we're celebrating. You know, are we celebrating the goodness of humanity? Are we celebrating, you know, goodwill to one another? Are we celebrating the fact that somebody gave us a present? Are we celebrating a guy in a red suit? Like, what are we celebrating at Christmas? And I hope by the end of the day, you see that Christmas is more about a victory than it is about charity. There's charity in Christmas, absolutely. God gave his own son. But it's more about the victory. It's more about the celebration of the defeat of God's enemies. The big idea today is that Christmas means Jesus made peace in heaven. Christmas means Jesus made peace in heaven. I hope this comes to light. 
what you're going to see is that the birth of Jesus, God's Messiah, and his ascension to God's throne, it signals the defeat of Satan. And so the devil has been expelled from heaven, but he does continue to wage war with God's people on earth because his doom is sure. And so Christmas, I hope you think of it this way, Christmas marks our invitation to share in God's victory. You'll be invited to a lot of different things this year. You might be invited to a work Christmas party. Maybe you're having a, a neighborhood block party. Maybe, you know, a relative invited you over, a friend. You're going to be invited to things this Christmas. But there is no greater invitation that you could get than to share in the victory that God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. That's the best invitation you're going to get. And I hope that you, for, from now forward, when you think about Christmas, you realize this is an invitation to share in the victory. That's why he came near. So as we said, um, we want to ensure that we need to participate in this victory. We, 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 we want to accept that invitation. In order to accept that invitation, we got to be absolutely crystal clear about three things. If we're going to share in this victory, three things we've got to be crystal clear on. The first one is the nature of Satan's opposition to God. The second is Satan's defeat in heaven. And the third is Satan's rage on earth. Now you say, why do we have to be clear about this? The text tells you. Because we see in verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven. Later on, in verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. As John is getting this revelation, God is giving him symbolic pictures because he doesn't want anybody to miss the point. God is saying, this is what you need to do. You need to read the signs. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. These signs are going to show us, teach us about Satan's opposition to God. It's going to teach us about Satan's defeat in heaven. And it's going to teach us about Satan's rage on earth. And this is important if we're going to share in the victory. And we'll, we'll look at what it means to do that as we get to the end. Uh, so... As we come to the text, there's sort of three main characters in this drama, and they're introduced here. We read verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon, and, and the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Sorry, I couldn't fit 12 stars. I know it's not 12, for those of you counting. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to design the sun around her head, and there's no moon there, all right? But you, you kind of get the point, okay? Right? There's, a, there's a, a woman, verse 2 says, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she's about to give birth. The woman that John sees, the great sign, she is a woman great with child. A woman great with child. She's about to give birth. Who is this woman? Now, how, who you understand this woman to be, I think it's really the key to understanding the, the, the rest of this passage, which is, which is pretty clear. Now, at first glance, we want to say, oh, this is Mary. And some have thought that and, and argued that, right? We may want to say, oh, this is the church. Nah, no. We might want to say, oh, this is Israel. Probably the best way to understand who this woman is, is this is the community of God's people. Now you say, how can a single woman represent a group of people? I'll tell you, read through your Old Testament. You see it plenty of times. Israel, the nation of Israel described as a wife 
or a bride or, or an abandoned child, right? Even outside of the Bible, you have uh, in depictions around the time that John is writing, you have, uh, you have stories of, of Rome or pictures of Rome represented as a woman sitting on seven hills. Later in this book, Babylon is going, to be predict, is going to be portrayed as a woman. So the idea that a single entity can represent a group of people is actually a lot more common than you and I may think. So the woman here represents a community of people, the community of God's people throughout time. Now, why do we say that? Well, there's a number of clues in the passage. But most specifically, Isaiah in his prophecy, is predicting that before God's deliverance, the nation is going to experience pain as if in childbirth. It's, it's almost literally a word-for-word -word fulfillment, and it helps explain why when she does give birth, you have this sort of strange, she gave birth to a son, a male child. You don't usually normally need to say you gave birth to a son and the son was a male. You don't normally need to say that. But that phrase, that language, a male child, is a word that is a hook word right back to the key prophecy in Isaiah that talks about this deliverance. We know the woman has, the, the, the stars are over her head. You might think of Joseph in the book of Genesis who is having a dream and he sees his parents and he sees this kind of celestial aura over them. The idea is that this is a regal community. This is a royal community. It's a special anointed community. Shining like the sun, they are favored, they are blessed. They're protected by God, they're chosen by God. But yet this community is also pictured as a vulnerable people. And it's hard to read the history of Israel through the Old Testament and not see just how vulnerable they are. I mean, this is a group of people that's on the verge of extinction nearly almost like every other chapter. The enemies surround them. And, and if you think about it in a geopolitical sense, the nation of Israel, the, the, it's really nothing in comparison to these empires of their day. So you don't have much to sort of record about, about them from a historical political lens. But yet in God's eyes, they're a favored community. And she's pregnant. Meaning there is, there is life that is supposed to come, about to come, but there is pain. And in the sense, you could say that, that throughout the history of Israel, there is increasing labor pains as, as both the promise is growing within the nation as well as their affliction is coming. You could say the nation of Israel is pregnant with promise. Because the longer the story goes, the more specific God gets about the sweeping deliverance, about how the, the, the offspring, the servant, the branch, the, the, the rod, like all, all these titles that come throughout the scriptures, it's more and more specific and it's more and more sweeping. She's pregnant with promise. But we know that she is also going to give birth to more offspring. Those who, in verse 17 we read, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So she's not only the mother of the nation of Israel, she's the mother of the church. 
Hence, the best understanding is that this woman represents God's covenant people, uh, certainly of whom Mary was a part. Next, who is the dragon? Now, you could say that, that, that John is most concerned to identify for the people who the dragon is. Uh, this, comes, this comes later. But we read in verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Now, seven, uh, the numbers in Revelation, are, it's not meant to be a secret code, but it is meant to just convey meaning. And seven is this number of completeness, right? So seven, seven heads is, this is a fierce creature, right? Uh, ten horns, it's a, it's, a, it's a callback to the vision that Daniel saw in, the, in, in his prophecy. Seven crowns on its head, as one commentator has described. The, the, the crowns on this dragon are not true authority. It's not legitimate authority, but it's an authority. And then the tail of this dragon sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. And, and in this, you know, some have read back into, uh, into what was prophesied in Isaiah about, about the ruler of Assyria, which later came to take on a connotation of how Satan fell, taking a third of the heavenly host with him. That's probably more speculative, probably the safer, the, the clearer understanding here. When its tail is sweeping stars out of the sky, you need to ask yourself, who put the stars in the sky? The creator, God, Yahweh put the stars in the sky. And so the sweeping the stars out of the sky is, is seen as this direct challenge to God in his nature and his person and his being. So who is the dragon? He is an illegitimate authority. We're also told later he's the ancient serpent, the devil who deceives Jesus would call him the father of lies. Also in this text, you'll see he's the accuser of God's people. He's the prince of demons. Ultimately, this is God's adversary. Not his equal, his adversary. And finally, who is the child? We read in verse 5. Oh, sorry, before we, before we get there, just, just note verse 4. The dragon's tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. This is a grotesque picture. This is a horrific picture. It's a dragon waiting to consume and destroy the offspring of the child, of, of, of this woman, ready to devour. There she is in a vulnerable position, about to bring a child into the world, and the dragon is there ready to consume it. In verse 5, we read that she gave birth to a child, to a son, a male child, who, and this is a quotation of Psalm 2, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, literally will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. It's a picture of governance. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So we know this is the child of promise. We know it's the ruler of nations. We know uh, in being snatched up to God, the, the implication here is that God is the father of this child. So this child is the son of God and to God's throne. It's the king of kings. This child is Jesus. 
Are you reading the signs? Out of God's covenant community of people, a deliverer would come. And God's adversary, Satan, is waiting to devour this child. But he's not successful. <laughs> now, what's amazing here is in verse 5, the whole life and ministry of Jesus is summarized by saying the child was born and then he was taken up. <laughs> that's, a whole, that's the whole life and ministry of Jesus. The focus at this point in Revelation is not upon the life and ministry of Jesus. But it's there. The focus here of what John is seeing is what's the result of this child coming, this, the, the arrival of this child, the arrival of Jesus? What, what does it mean? So, you've met the, the, the main characters. Now, let's go through, briefly summarize here. We need to be clear about Satan's opposition. Satan has set himself as a rival authority to God. And because he cannot destroy God, he will seek to destroy his work, especially those in his image. And you need to know he is behind every attempt to destroy the Messiah. Every attempt. Whether it's people trying to entice the people of God, whether it's uh, Balak hiring Balaam to try to get a curse pronounced on the people of God that they might be crushed, whether it's King David being enticed uh, into sin, uh, whether it's later on in the book of Esther when God's people have been exiled and this man Haman who decides that the only thing that's going to give him joy is to wipe out the race of God's covenant people. Throughout history, you see the, the, the effort to eliminate this community of people, and specifically the child. You recall in the book of Exodus, Moses' birth. When Moses is about to be born, Pharaoh, the, the, the king of Egypt, gives an edict. He says that all the male children of Hebrew women are to be drowned in the river. That's going to come up later. <laughs> And you recall the birth of Jesus after the Magi come and after they, they, they report to Herod, the governing authority, and say, we are here. We saw the, the king's star. And Herod says, oh, let me, why don't you tell me where he is when you find him? And they were warned in a dream not to tell Herod where Jesus was. And how did Herod respond? by ordering the slaughter of all male children two years and under. This is not simply the maniacal whims of people in power. What John wants you to see and what the church needs to understand is that there is a personal power that is actively opposing the purposes of God and is intent on the destruction of his people. And specifically, the, the, the destruction of the Messiah. But praise be to God, he is not successful. The woman is protected. After she gives birth, the child is snatched up to God, literally taken up. One thinks of Jesus' ascension and to his throne. One thinks of Psalm 110, 
where the, David writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. This is a period of three and a half years. It's what's also meant later on in the chapter by time, times, and half a time. Time, i.e. a year, times, i.e. two years, and half a time, i.e. half a year. Three and a half years. If you were a Jew living around the time of John and somebody said, oh, something's going to go on for about three and a half years, that number, that period of time would ring a very significant bell. Because there was a time before Jesus was born under the reign of a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. This is predicted in the book of Daniel, who would exercise a systematic persecution of everyone who professed the name of Yahweh as their God. It was a capital offense, a capital offense to read the scripture, a capital offense to pray to this God. As D.A. Carson points out in his message on this, this is kind of a, this was sort of an interesting historical fact. Guerrilla warfare, the actual tactics for guerrilla warfare originated from Jews in that time who were trying to stave off this systematic persecution. So you couldn't mention the years, you couldn't mention the period three and a half years without thinking, thinking of a time of severe trial that would come to a sudden end and bring freedom. Just like you can't say the words 9-11 to my generation. You say the words 9-11, I have an immediate connotation of what that means. It brings up thoughts, emotions, feelings. Similarly, this period of three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. And so the idea here is that the woman, the community of God's people is taken away into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? That's where God met with his people. That's where God made them his own. It was a wooing time. It was a time, maybe not of lush provision, but it was a time of being fed by the hand of God. And so the woman is here taken to the wilderness and protected for a period of three and a half years, saying the covenant community is going to be safe. It's going to be all right. But the focus then shifts in verse 7 to what goes on in heaven. And here we see Satan's defeat. Verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. The scene shifts to something that we don't really talk about at Christmas. The scene shifts to the cosmic realm, to, to the heavenly place where God has his true throne. If you want to have an idea of what else is going on in that heavenly place, take a peek back to the last verse of chapter 11. In the last verse of chapter 11, you see John gets a view of the temple of heaven opening, the doors opening, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. And you have all these, these atmospheric sort of manifestations, thunder and lightning and, and these, these portents or these omens of, of God's presence. So what else is going on in heaven is this, this, this conflict, this great struggle. And Michael, who's portrayed in scripture, is kind of sort of the head angel. 
The head angel in Daniel, he's referred to three times as the prince who watches over God's people. So this idea that, that, that Michael is an angel who's been given responsibility to look after the community of God's people. He makes war with Satan and Satan is thrown down. He loses. Now some of you may be surprised to find out that Satan was in heaven. Yes, he was. If you read the book of Job, you get a picture of what he was doing. And in the book of Job, we see that there was really no restriction. Satan could go to earth. He could go to heaven. He, he, he shows up in the beginning of the book of Job, and God says to Satan, where have you been? He says, I've been wandering around the earth. God says, what have you found? And he brings this charge, this accusation, and you can read the book of Job to see about all the pain and all the turmoil that that was caused before Job saw God's blessing again. We're told in these verses that he is the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. Why would Satan care so much? I suggest to you a hint comes to us from the Psalms where David writes that, that he made humanity a little lower than the angels. We don't have the splendor of angels. But then he says he crowned them with glory and majesty. Human beings are made in the image of God, which is unlike any other created thing, even an angel. And even if in our flesh we don't, <laughs> we don't carry that splendor, we don't really see that splendor, nevertheless, God clothed us, clothed humanity with glory and honor. Of all the creation, he put, it, he put men and women in the garden and he said, you, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it, rule over the earth. So the idea is that men and women are God's image bearers and they are reflecting his reign and his authority over his creation. And the angels, we're told in the book of Hebrews, are ministering spirits, means they're servants meant to serve us. They help us. And so the subtext in all of this is that the accuser of the brethren doesn't think human beings are worth it. The accuser of the brethren doesn't think that human beings deserve this promise, this glory, this redemption. And so he's going around the halls of heaven accusing us before God. Prior to the coming of Christ, he would seek to crush humanity between God's holiness and our sinfulness. And he would just put it on God's desk every single day. Hey, did you see what David did? You say he's a man after your own heart. Are you seriously going to let, are you going to build him a house? Are you going to build a lineage? God, your king's going to come through David? Really? This adulterer and this murderer? Aren't you a holy God? Aren't you a just God? And you just, you can almost hear the, the echoes of the accusation, the echoes of the condemnation going through the halls of heaven. But when Jesus came, when Jesus arrived, God put on flesh. God took our humble state upon himself and he lived a sinless life and he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. And so God could be both just and the justifier, the one who is holy and the one who makes holy. He could do that for all of humanity. 
provided we come under the authority of Jesus Christ and we put our trust in him in this new covenant. You see, when Jesus came and when he died and when he rose and when he was brought into heaven on God's throne, Satan had no quarter. He had no place. There was no room for him anymore. The argument was over. There, there, there's no case. He's been thrown out. And so now Michael and the angels and all the other heavenly hosts say, get out of here. You have no place here. And now there is peace in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Not that God was ever out of control or disturbed, but now in heaven there is absolute serenity. Everything has been reconciled. Everything has been restored. God's purposes have been totally and fully accomplished. And we're now just working them out. I don't know how, how much many of you think about history or World War II. And I've heard this example used by a few preachers and teachers. Um, I think Dia Carson uses it well. But Christmas is kind of like D-Day. It's the day when, when all the forces, all the troops land and arrive. And you could say once that operation was successful, the war was over. It was simply a matter of time. It was simply a matter of working it all out because the reinforcements had arrived. The ones who had the ability to break the back of the opponent had landed. There was suffering, but the outcome of the war was not really in doubt. It's an illustration that's not perfect. <laughs> so Satan is thrown out of heaven. He is now barred, he cannot go there and heaven is th filled with joy. But alas, <laughs> he has yet to fully and finally be defeated. I mean, he's been defeated, but he's, he's not gone. Satan is restricted and so he no longer enters heaven and his banishment is then now a reminder of his certain defeat. And so he's only got a little time left and so he sets himself to destroy what God cherishes, namely the redeemed of the Lord. Look, look with me at verse, uh, verse 10. Now have come, this is the loud voice in heaven, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. The angels are like, yes, now he's here. You want to know why the whole host of heaven is there peeking out looking at the shepherds? Because they're like, oh, he did it. This thing is done. Like, it's over now. That's why all of heaven's peeping over the shepherds looking at, looking at this news, announcing this, this story. Now have come the salvation and the power. Now have come the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Messiah. The accuser of the brothers and sisters has accused them day and night before God has been hurled down. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Then you get to verse 12, therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. I sort of cynically chuckled to myself when I saw the first song was Joy to the World. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, yes, it is Joy to the World. <laughs> it's very much, I love the song. And there is peace on earth. You'll hear about that next week. But, but heaven says, 
It's going to get tough on earth. It's going to be hard. This is what we see, verse 13. The woman, uh, when the dragon saw, it sort of resumes the story after it's been interrupted. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, right? He can't get the child. Satan can't touch Jesus. He tried. He tempted him. He tried to break his back in the garden. He thought he won on the cross, and he realized he lost. He can't get Jesus. But what he does is he pursues the woman. Verse 14, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Again, this picture of divine deliverance and safety. So that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Again, we're repeating the same thing. Out of the reach of the serpent. So, Satan can't touch Jesus, but he will persecute the community of God's people. And he goes after her. And I think it's very easy to see, while this is a broad, sweeping, almost... Um, fable-like representation of the conflict between God and Satan and how God's people get caught up into it, there's also a very real application in the life of Jesus and what happened to God's people after that. So the woman is provided a place. Satan doesn't have a place in heaven, but the woman is given a place. Verse 15, then from the mouth of the serpent spewed water like a river. Remember what Pharaoh tried to do to the male children of the Hebrew women? He tried to drown them. That's a similar picture here right? Out of the serpent's mouth comes a torrent trying to sweep away the woman. But the earth, now creation, is helping the woman, opens its mouth, swallows the rivers of the, uh, that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Satan is peeved off. He is angry, and he's filled with the fury of a madman who would only have power and control and has found out that he can't have it. He is filled with the evil rage that has touched some of the most maniacal leaders in world history. The people who thrive on destruction, people who delight in devouring other people, be it economically, politically, be it through war, genocide. What John is given, this picture that he's given, is to make sure that the churches that he's writing to understand that, yes, while they may have a problem with Nero, yes, while they may have this thing called the Roman Empire that is all around them and that seems to be squeezing the kingdom life out of them, that they need to understand that the source behind all of that is no mere human, but is the devil himself who is raging against the light, raging against the light. And that the very existence, the very assembly of the Christian community is a testimony of his defeat. And John wants the church to know that. Because for time, times, and half a time, this war is going to continue to rage on. 
You see, we often look at time simply linearly, but John is not really concerned about dates and calendars here. He's zoomed right out for the whole story. And he says, when you look at the whole story of God's people, and you look at the history of all that God's made and that he's done and the redemption and everything, this period of time, this moment that we are in of persecution and harassment and oppression, this moment that we are in where lies come to us more readily than truth, this moment in time is only temporary, and in the grand scheme of things, it's short. It's brief. It'll be done with. It'll be over. And the church needs to know that. Why? Because when you walk in these doors on a Sunday, you aren't simply attending a civic service. You're not simply participating. You're not simply walking into a gathering of people in the Hawkesbury. When you and I, and when we gather here in the name of Jesus Christ, when we do what we're about to do in about three minutes' time and take communion together, we are holding up the scoreboard to Satan and we are saying, you've lost. You have lost. You are doomed and your defeat is sure. And he hates that. And he hates Christians. And so the apostle Peter, who knew failure very well, he could write to the church in his epistle in 1 Peter chapter 5, he could say, watch out. Because the devil walks around. He prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. All he can do is destroy. He cannot win. He cannot win. So, what does this mean for us? Jesus will indeed save us from our sins. It's left to us to share the victory. And I just want to hit you briefly with some, just some, some take-home points. First of all, be sure you're on the side of King Jesus. Honestly, be sure you're on the side of King Jesus. Um, take his name. Take his banner, his standard. Wear the king's colors, right? Don't, don't be a friend of the world. Yes, you, you can be a loving person in the world, but, but don't make a treaty with, with the enemy. Don't try to be Switzerland. There is no Switzerland in this conflict. There's no neutral ground. And so the church tells the story throughout time to say, hey, you have an opportunity. King Jesus is enlisting people into his army. He's enlisting people into his forces. It doesn't matter what colors you used to wear. It doesn't matter how you, might, you used to rage against him. You could have been Paul or Saul, as he was known back then. You could have been Saul and, and been actively fighting against his people. He will still let you on his side. Be sure you're on his side. You say, how do I get on his side? Well, it, it begins with confession and repentance. It begins by acknowledging that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that acknowledgement is, is reckoned with turning from our sin. It doesn't mean we're, 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 we're suddenly somehow able to live a perfect life, but it means my orientation is to follow Jesus now. It's not to follow my own devices and my own agenda. Be sure you're on the side of King Jesus. Secondly, know the enemy and his tactics. Know the real enemy. Paul would write, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and the rulers of this dark realm. 
I know you think the problem that you got is your sister. You know, I know you think it's just, if she would just understand the way you do things and, and the way you, you know, handle your business, or, you know, if, if you just could get rid of that boss. I, I know you think, like, that's how we think, right? We think it's, it's these people. But we need to recognize the real enemy in all this. And I'm not saying there's not human responsibility. I'm not saying that, you know, we just say the devil made me do it all the time. But what I am saying is, if you don't recognize you're in a war, you're going to take a hit. And know his tactics. He's been a liar from the beginning. He will get you with half-truths and untruths and intimidation more than any real substance. He comes at you to destabilize your feet so that you're not standing on the rock of the Word of God. You're not standing on Jesus Christ anymore. You're standing on yourself. Thirdly, know the path to victory. How do we overcome? It's right here in the text. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Again, Carson puts it so well. By doesn't necessarily mean through. It means on the basis of. On the basis of the blood of the Lamb, you and I overcome. And we should all say, hallelujah. Because it means it's not on the basis of me. It's not on the basis of my knowledge or lack of knowledge. It's not on the basis of my performance, my ability to keep the rituals or not keep the rituals. It's on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. That is how we overcome. By the blood of the Lamb. If you're ever asked by anyone, by God or an angel or, or, or another human being, what is your hope of heaven? I hope the only thing that comes to your mind is to say, the blood of Jesus Christ who died for me. That is the basis on which we overcome. And the word of their testimony. In other words, the continuing to share of this story. Do you know why? Because God in his wisdom has chosen that the power of God is manifested through the preaching of the gospel, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so as you and I tell our story, as you and I say, you know, I was a sinner. You know, all I knew was rebellion against God. I didn't even know how far I'd fallen. But Jesus Christ came along and he picked me up and he lifted me up. And by his blood, he cleansed me from every wrong thing I ever did. And I am now accepted and holy and welcome in his kingdom. As we share that story, do you know what? The spirit of God is working in the hearts of the people that you're talking to. And they are hearing that. And the spirit is saying, you know what? There's hope for you too. Just, just call on Jesus. Just come to the Lord. There's hope for you too. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony for why they did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. And, and brothers and sisters, this is going to be a test for our generation. A test for our generation is, are we going to love the things of this world more than we love Christ? The people who overcome love Christ more. Make provision for the ongoing battle. You can read about the armor of God and putting on Jesus Christ and taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is our only offensive weapon. But I want to focus on the last two. Listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd. He is your commanding officer. He is the one who tells you and directs you. Jesus would say, my sheep know my voice. 
How are you going to survive against the devil's lies and tactics? You need to learn the voice of the shepherd. And if you don't know the word of God, if you don't know what Jesus has said, if you don't know, if, if you don't understand his heart, then you won't understand when the spirit is speaking to you. Learn the voice of the shepherd. And finally, learn to sing heaven's victory songs. Honestly, sometimes, sometimes the most obedient, faithful, victorious thing you can do is to sing in the face of the opposition. Is to simply praise the name of your God. To sing the praises of Jesus Christ. And my encouragement to you is there is confidence, for you to have this confidence, that, that there is no praise that you can bring on earth that is not being amen and hallelujah in heaven. There is joy in heaven right now because Jesus has brought peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the victory that you've won. I pray today that we might enter into the joy of Christmas, not simply as a charity, as something that's sentimental, but because it's your victory. Thank you, God, that you have done it all. You're the one who said it is not by might and not by power, but by my spirit. You're the one who said the battle belongs to the Lord. And so, God, may we bring you praise today as we partake. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.